Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we just thank you for these words that we've sung, that they have been instruction to our hearts as well. And we've just begun our time of study, even through the music. And as we study your word, we pray that we would look to it as being a continuance of our worship of you, Lord, that you be glorified in it and that you help us in our understanding of it, that you would guard the things that I say, Lord, help them not to be in error, Lord. And if they are, that they would just perish here before they would enter into the ears of those who would hear, Lord, and take root in our hearts, that only the essence of your truth would be what remains. We ask this in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, seems like the seats have filled in somewhat since I last looked out here, so it is good to have you all here this morning. Um, Seems like we're all running a little bit behind. I'm usually here about an hour before the service starts, if not a little bit more, and we arrived here just about 10 or 5 minutes before because we forgot some things back at home, and um, one of the challenges of living pretty far out of town is having to go back and get things and then arrive back here in time, but we know that this is all um, under God's providence, and so we just trust that uh, the things that happen are, are happening for a reason, and uh, so we are gathered here this morning to just center ourselves around God and His Word and the message of His Word. So I ask that you turn with me to First John chapter 2, and we are in verse 18 this morning. If you've been here for a while, you've, um, you've recognized that we, for the most part, teach expository here, where we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse in a book until we're done with that book, and then we move on to another. And so we've been studying the book of 1 John for some time now, probably uh, five or six weeks into the book of John, if not a little bit more, and I've shared uh, in that teaching with some of the elders here and and others, and uh, we have just seen some richness just come out in these words of John, which we know is not John himself, but the Holy Spirit through John. So when we look to God and his word, we know that it is God's word to us. But if you're there in 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to begin in, in, beginning in verse 18, and I'm going to go through verse 25. All right, 18 through 25, 1 John chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. All right, we've read the word of the Lord, and now let's turn to the Lord of the word in prayer. And Wes, would you do that for us, please?
Amen. Thank you, Wes. So a lot of times when we're in a holiday or on a holiday and we're celebrating a a particular event that's marked on our calendars, uh, we might try to pick a message that is themed appropriately. And last uh, Sunday, Sunday happened to land on Christmas, and so we had more of a Christmas themed message. Today I wanted us, even though it is New Year's and that's typically what we're celebrating is the start of a new year, new beginnings, I, I didn't want us to depart for too long away from our study in John. All right, because I felt it was important for us to get back into the flow, not have too many topical studies interspersed in between our, our regular uh, teaching uh, thought or passage, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But as I was studying this, I thought, what better way to ring in the new year than to have this timely warning from John? As he says, children, it is the last hour. John is urging believers to consider the time that we are living in and that it is the last hour. We are given some indications as to why that we can know that this is the last hour that we are living in, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. But first, I want to look at the way John addresses us. He's addressing us, he's addressing his readers at that time as children. And a few Sundays back, you may remember that we looked at two Greek words that are used for children in the writings of John. So there's, we just translate it one way, we just call it children. But the Greeks, you have two different words for children. Uh, This use of children that we're starting off with in verse 18 is the same as how it was used in verse 13 of chapter 2 of John. The word is pideon. And it means young children. And when we think of young children in the context of believers, this is those who are still in their infancy, those in need of more care and of more guidance. This is all of us when we were first saved where we having realized our sins have been forgiven and what brought us our salvation. And there's just that joy that we have and that newness of life that has been given to us. And so, uh, but yet we are still not grown up in the knowledge of God's word. And that's the use of children uh, in our passage today. The other use is padia, and that just means child, or sorry, that was our, our word that we're looking at. Technia is the other one. And technia means born ones, and it's more generally uh, of offspring. And so it has less to do with the physical age or maturity and more to do with status or position, that we are all children of God, regardless of what level of spiritual maturity we're standing in or that we're sitting at. um, We are all called children of God in God's word, and that is the Greek word technia. But here we're looking at paideon, which means the young children there in the infancy of their face, the ones that need more care and guidance. And John is telling children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. And so John's words imply an approaching end. And today, especially, we think of a time of fresh starts, right? Not, not an approaching of the end of all things, but there is an approaching deadline that we need to be prepared for. And that's why I think this message is timely. As we enter into a new year, we need to always be alert. And not loving the, the world or the things of the world that John warned us about in verse 15, which is where we were in week before last. And to be in the last hour, John is speaking of an age, in a sense. He's not speaking of, you know, looking at his time clock and say, okay, the service is near an end. I got to get done with this. He is speaking of, of an age of existence of mankind. <clears throat> 
So the word-for-word translation from Greek to English would read this way, last hour it is. We are living in the age now that John is referring to here, this present evil age. And there are only two ages, as we see in Scripture. And this verse kind of leads into a discussion of, what I would call about eschatology or the study of end times, and there is much debate about this, and the one thing we need not do is try to guess at the date when the things that John describes in Revelation will all go down. And there are a lot of books out there, a lot of special uh, anointed speakers that claim to have some special revelation about this, and they are raking in a lot of money doing it. And I strongly caution not to get too caught up in it and wandering off down unbiblical rabbit trails because there are many. Um, In our last study of this chapter, John says in verse 17 of chapter 2, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So there, John gives us an indication of what is going to come of this world. And that is why we are not to love the things in the world. We're not to love the world, the evil forces and influences behind the world. We're not to set it up as an idol that we serve more than God because this world is fading away. It will die. And the things we need to be concerned about is the things that are eternal, particularly our soul's eternity. We have this age that we are in currently, that we're in currently, and then we have the age to come. And those who hold to a yet future second coming in Christ hold that the last hour that John references here began at the first coming of Christ. The age that is yet to come will be ushered in by Christ coming a second time. But until that time, we live in the age that is now, the one that we're in the last hour is what John is saying. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me, Verses 22 through 26, passage that I want to reference in regards to us being in this last hour and then the hour or the age to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In verse 24, he says, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, after destroying every rule. This is in reference to Christ's final return, which I'll call the second age here. But the last hour that John is talking about is the one that we are in currently. And I think it is best just to note here, John is discussing an age, and it is the one we are in, and the age to come will be in Christ's return that we just read of there in 1 Corinthians 15. Satan is very active in this age, and especially this last hour that John refers to. He says, many antichrists have come. And that's referencing those that have already come. Satan's influence has been done through the hands of many, and these are called the Antichrist, and I'll call them that with a little a. It speaks of both individuals that are opposed to Christ and the evil force of influence behind those 
that distort the truth and provide us with and instead of Christ. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul also writes to the Thessalonians about unique and and identifiable historical event that is called the apostasy. And before the day of the Lord comes, there will be a climactic act of apostasy that is led by the man of lawlessness, or son of destruction, as he is referred to as well. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 6, Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what it is, restrain, what it is that is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. So this man that is referred to is the Antichrist, and this is with a capital A. And this will be the one that will openly defy God's rule. He will live without regard for the law, and the only thing that restrains him, the final Antichrist, what restrains him now so that in due time he will be revealed is the Holy Spirit. God is restraining through the Holy Spirit and it will be revealed in his perfect timing. The arrival of the Antichrist is on God's timetable. We can't force it. We can't really predict it. Uh, but there are some evidences and some things that we can look to that the scriptures give us of who the Antichrist would be or what to look out for. And the name Antichrist is important to understand, and let's break it into two words because that's really what it is. It's anti and Christ. And anti is the prefix of the word, and it can mean to be against something, to be the opposite of, but one of the interesting phrases that is used to translate anti is also instead of, instead of. And the word Christ, we've studied this one before, that means the the anointed one, God's anointed one specifically uh, in terms of Christ Jesus our Savior. The full title of Jesus is Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord. He, Christ is also called God's Messiah, which also means anointed one, the one promised as the Redeemer to come throughout the Old Testament, and that we know today as Christ, that all the prophecies concerning him were fulfilled in Christ. So Christ is our Messiah. Christ is God's anointed one. So with the prefix, it means the very opposite of Christ, to put anti in front of it. Not just different from Jesus, but this is the antipole of Jesus' character. It's an instead of Jesus. It refers to someone who is altogether different in contrast. And the study of God's word is so vital in a believer's life and for many reasons, and we could list a number of them here, but I would say that one of the main reasons why we should be studying our word is to grow more in the knowledge of who God is. And that is to know his character, to know his attributes as they they are described in the scriptures. Because if you don't, How will you be able to pick up on the one who is opposed to him? How will you know the anti of Christ if you don't know Christ and you don't know the God of the Bible and his character and his his holiness and his immutability and all those things that are of him, his his holy love? We understand to reason that if Jesus went around doing 
all these good things, then shouldn't the Antichrist be doing all the bad things? That he will only speak lies because Jesus spoke truth. And if we think that he will be that easy to recognize, then we might be surprised that it will more likely be one who will look good. It will be one who will probably have a charm about them. They may be a very charismatic personality that people are just generally attracted to. It may be someone who is very successful in this world, maybe someone who or probably will be someone who is very rich, almost like today's movie star status kind of people. I'm not saying it's a movie star or trying to predict that, but you, you have that in mind, one who's very, very rich, one who has a lot of influence, one who has a lot of friends around them. So maybe we should think more about that one definition of anti being the instead of Christ. Because we might think that this Antichrist is going to appear at first as an extremely evil person. That everybody should just be able to know who it is. But again, this comes back to you know the God of the Bible well. So that you will know who the Antichrist is. We think of people in history and one that comes to mind is Adolf Hitler and all the evil atrocities that he was responsible for. And having lived in Germany for several years and spoken to some of the older folks that lived there through the, the war and during his reign before the war, they would talk about how deceived they were by this man. He appeared as one who was out to prosper his people. He started youth movements that rallied them around what appeared to be a good cause, and he was good at hiding his true motives. And many that I talked to, would, they would tear up and they would apologize to us for, you know, even many years later, having thought him to be like their hero, only to find out that what he was really doing uh, was all these atrocities and the murdering of millions of people, and by that time, it was really too late. And there have been many antichrists with a little a that have come, and I believe that we have lived through some of them like Hitler, but there will be the one to come with a capital A, and I don't mean Adolf, but the one who will appear as an angel of light, because scripture tells us there will be deception. He will appear as someone who, who is good. Seem to be referencing Paul's writings a lot, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 through 15, where he is actually referred to as an angel of light, Satan himself. Paul writes there, and what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. So Satan being the angel of light himself and referred to that as scripture, but yet even his servants will disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They will be deceptive. They will be able to hide evil motives. And there will be an ultimate antichrist who will come and who will deceive the nations. But many will precede this one and I believe that is what John is referring to when he says so many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. We are in the last hour, and we will not know the year, the day, or the hour of his return, though many will try and predict God's timetable is not ours, and so we wait. But with anticipation, 
that his, time, his return could be any time, and it could be very soon. Maybe we are in the last minutes of this hour. Maybe we're in the last seconds of this hour, but we don't know. John says, therefore, we know it is the last hour. In verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Because many antichrists have come, we know that it is within the last hour that we live. And from what I can discern from my study of eschatology or end times is that the ultimate antichrist has not yet been revealed to us, has not yet been unveiled. I've heard many have come and many have died who, you know, people in my past, grandparents, they must be the Antichrist. No, this one is the Antichrist with a capital A and that they've died, they've gone on. And there are probably some that we want to point fingers at right now and say, well, that's the Antichrist or that's the Antichrist. We need to be aware that there are many little Antichrists, but there will be one ultimate one. Now, if John was saying this was true in his day, then how much more true is it of the days we live in now? We might view it as John writing in the beginning seconds in his day or of the age, but here we are maybe in the final few. Apparently, they begin with them, those that were within, because John says they went out from us, but they were not of us. So that indicates that they identified as Christians because to go out meant that they had to be within at one time. However, though they were in the flock, they were not real sheep. They were not of them. There are those that have been part of this church body that maybe have gone out. And rather than going out to another Bible-believing church or just moving elsewhere, and they're not walking away from the faith. This is walking into error. This is walking apart from who God is in the Bible. John continues that we would know they were real if they had continued with us. So John is speaking of what I see here as salvation authenticity. If they really believed in the truth, then they would have continued in the truth and not wandered off after the false teachings and the false teachers. Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 I'm not going to read all of it, but in verses 14 through 19, Jesus says, I have given them your word, and he's speaking of his disciples here and those who would come afterwards. He says, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Those remaining in the truth, those that would not leave out and depart after false idols, false teachings, false ideas of God. But yet John, comes, coming back to him, says, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And we don't like to see anyone wonder from faith in God's word as truth. And it should grieve us to see those who get caught up in error and drawn away. There are those and probably these antichrists that are there all along to deceive and to build a following within, 
trying to snatch away those who would find their doctrines appealing and catering to the worldly drives within the flesh. That is who John is writing of. Those who came, they were part of us, but now they have, they have gone out. They have departed from us. They have left the faith. And in John's day, he was writing primarily rebuking the religion, if you will, of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism must have sounded very appealing to children in their level of maturity, their understanding of the scriptures. And because they didn't have a good healthy understanding of God's attributes and and who he presented himself as in the scriptures, that Gnosticism um, had this, maybe this little flavor to it that really was, sounded like it was tasteful to them. That it could promise you that you could sin all you wanted to and you weren't responsible for that sin because you were just a fleshly creature and that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. If he did, he would have had to have been sinful and just taking the scriptures and twisting it but making it sound appealing to people that you're still promised heaven but just go out and do what you've always done. And we know that scripture would speak strongly against that and Paul would refute that vehemently in Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue sinning that grace may abound? By no means, exclamation point, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul would also warn of these types that John is referring to as those who were in, but they were not really in. That they were only there to deceive and draw people away. Paul would liken them to wolves as he warns the elders of Ephesus in his speech to them in Acts chapter 20. Paul was about to leave the elders for what he thought would be his last time to see them, and so he wanted to urge them to stand strong in the faith and leave them with some reminders. And he would say this in Acts 20, 26 through 32. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We know Paul spent... Um, days, weeks, sometimes years within cities where he was, and he continually taught the Word of God day after day, probably sessions that would go hours long till people fell asleep and fell out windows, but he wanted to be sure that they knew the whole counsel of God. They knew the Word of God well. They knew the God of the Bible well, that they knew who the Messiah would be so that when they're confronted with these false teachings, that there would be no excuse for falling away after them. He said he didn't shrink from preaching to them the whole counsel of God. And then he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And here's the point I want to make. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Well, there, a very strong warning from Paul that there would be wolves, there would be deceivers from the outside that would come into the body to draw people away to false teaching, to draw them into error. But not only would there be those that would come from the outside in, but there were those in the inside that would speak twisted things that would draw the disciples after them. And we see strong warnings about those who will appear as being one of us. They may be exceptionally gifted at speaking and easy to make friends. What they profess may sound really solid, but eventually the cracks will begin to show. 
And as elders in this church, we want to be careful about what we bring to you in terms of the teachings from this pulpit. And we want to hold to expository teaching, which I believe makes it harder to wonder from the truth of Scripture. And there's no perfect church out there. I'm not claiming that, that we're perfect and we're doing it right on the t- all the time. We're going to get things wrong. But we are continually bringing ourselves to the Word of God in order to get a better understanding. John says that it might be plain that they were not of us. There was something glaring about their doctrine that stuck out. Maybe they didn't like what they were hearing in the teachings of the early church. They began to walk away and try to take followers with them uh, so that they would know that they are not of us, is what John says. Just because someone professes a belief in Jesus Christ as their Savior, we need to look hard in order to evaluate whether there really is a sincere profession of faith or whether it is just giving lip service to it. And we're hoping that those things are being exposed. And again, why we want to confront things with Scripture, to see where, where people stand, truly. I mean, if there are questions that arise about those within the church who might be trying to deceive and draw people away after false doctrines, uh, we want to be alert and aware of that. We need to stand guard of that. That's a challenge to, to me and to elders in the church is to, to look for those who might try to destroy the flock and pull people away from the truth. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So John circles back to address the children, those who are believers that may may not be mature in their faith, and John saying they have been anointed by the Holy One. And I think that is referring to those they're saved. You know, if you're anointed by the Holy Spirit, you are saved. It is what is also referred to uh, often as the anointing of the Holy Spirit at salvation. In Titus 3, 4 through 7, uh, Paul speaks of this, but when the goodness uh, and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we hold that the anointing of the Holy Spirit occurs at salvation, and that is the regeneration of our hearts. We don't hold to some special post-salvation anointing of the Spirit that is indicated by special sign gifts, You know, like someone suddenly having the ability to to prophesy or someone having the ability to to speak in tongues, um, those kinds of things. But this anointing of the Holy Spirit, the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit is salvation. And once saved, the Holy Spirit then indwells the inner being of a believer and they begin to understand the truth of Scripture because it is being revealed to them now with a changed heart. There's a continual filling of the Holy Spirit, but not not the continual anointing once and then again and then again and then again. We were talking about those who have been saved. And in verse 21, the phrase, I write to you, you know, John is really singling out the uh, believers here. He's affirming their salvation. He's giving them assurance of how they can know and what they can rely on to help them know, and that is the truth of God. You either know the truth or you don't. You either believe in the truth or you believe in a lie. And it's, it's been very much black and white with John. You know, he hasn't tried to paint a gray area in between for us that we can maybe sit on that proverbial fence. But we're either in the truth 
or we're believing in a lie. And there are many religions who acknowledge Jesus, even saying that he's a prophet of God or a good teacher or even savior, but you start wading into the details with them and find uh, what they are really offering is a false or a substitute Christ. And as Christians, we should be cultivating biblical knowledge into our lives so that we can continually test what we hear, especially when it concerns one's belief and who they believe Jesus was and is and what he came to accomplish, how he accomplished it, and where he is now and what he will do in the future. We are told to not despise prophecies, but we are to test everything and hold fast to what is good. So we see that those who are false will eventually depart, that they will deny the faith. And what John is saying here, they'll have a twisted idea of Jesus his person, his work, his saving message. There will likely be the addition of human works into his grace where there is something you can do in order to obtain his favor, but that would just be distorting grace altogether. What we see here is the one who is Antichrist denies the Father and the Son. He says, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. I like the way the NASB translates it better in verse 22. He says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Deny, to deny the deity of Jesus Christ is akin to denying God. And John will point out more specifically in his second letter, in 2 John 1.7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. There's a uh, quote that I'm going to use from a commentator says, the heretical perception of Christ held by Gnostics is the philosophy that envisioned a Christ spirit an ethereal but powerful supernatural being who descended on a man named Jesus at his baptism and left him just before his death. Thus the Christ spirit was not fully human, but only temporarily indwelt a man through whom that spirit before departing demonstrated extraordinary power and wisdom. That was kind of the summary of what Gnosticism believed, but you could see the error in that, and what they attempted to do was to try to strip the deity away from Christ entirely. John says in 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Opposite those who are antichrist are those who confess Jesus Christ as God's one and only Son, being co-eternal with God, meaning they acknowledge him as God and Savior. You could call them anti-antichrists. I guess that's what we are as Christians. We're anti-antichrists, meaning we're against those who are against Christ. They acknowledge Jesus as the Son, the only begotten of the Father, confess Him as the Son, confess Him as Lord, and one can know that they have the Father also when they have the right belief of who the Son is and that He is God. Because to know the Son is to know the Father, and that's what Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 as he's explaining to Philip and the other disciples, he said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? The two are inseparable. We cannot say that we know one and not the other. If we deny one but acknowledge the other, we're really denying them both. Here again, we have very clear lines drawn out for us to stand on one side or the other. So far in our study, like I said, we've seen darkness, we've seen light comparison, 
The contrast between the two, we've seen evil, we've seen the good comparison, lies compared to truth, denying contrasted with confessing here. You should know what side you're on and whose side you're on. John uses a word that he's very fond of using in his writings, and that is the word abide. And it's the Greek word meno, and it means to survive or live in regards to a person. So abiding in Christ is to survive in him, is to live in him. It doesn't mean to sit idle in something, but it is tapped into the source of life and is itself living. We have the vine and the branches analogy that Jesus gives us in John chapter 15, and it is probably because the Lord uses this word himself in the description of his being the vine and us being the branches that John uses this word abide so often. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So what is he writing about, what we have heard from the beginning? Well, the testimony of John and the other apostles who walked, talked, and ate with Jesus, they witnessed the countless miracles that Jesus performed. They saw their resurrected Lord. And to let his word abide in us is to abide in him. We don't add anything to this. What is from the beginning stands. We don't add some progressive nuance or drastic changes to make the gospel fit into our modern culture. And one of God's attributes is that he is immutable. He does not waver on his disposition towards sin. And he doesn't waver on his plan for salvation. We don't think things into existence just because we want it to be. You know, Stephen was teaching the kids you know, about Jonah when God did not do what he wanted him to. You know, then he, he began to stomp his feet and to get mad and pouty, but we don't change God. In verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I know I've kept you here longer today, but we're almost here at a close. Uh, God is the grantor of eternal life and is the only one who can make the promise and stand by it. So if Jesus makes the claim to grant it himself, then he is God. God does not make a promise that he doesn't keep, For if the one who believes in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, eternal life is for them. If you've believed Jesus Christ as your Savior and acknowledged him as Lord, then eternal life is yours. I want to look at the Gospel of John for a moment, just in chapter 3, and I have a few verses that I just kind of plucked out there, uh, verses 16 and 35 through 36, just to drive this eternal life point home. Many of you are already familiar with verse 16 of chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you go ahead to verse 35 of that chapter, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, it's all about Jesus and what he has done for us to accomplish eternal life for those who believe. That he would be our Emmanuel, God with us. That he would come in the flesh, not leaving behind his deity, but being clothed in human flesh, being fully God and fully man. He would live a sinless life, proving himself as being the only sacrifice worthy to atone for our sins once and for all in the here and now and in the eternity to come that he would bear our sins to the cross and he would incur the wrath of the Father on our behalf. Our sins were imputed to him so that God could then impute his righteousness to us, the righteousness of God that comes as a gift through faith of those who believe and repent of their sin. This is ours in the age that is now. 
and in the age that is to come. Jesus would tell his disciples in Luke 18, Verse 29 through 30, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. John started off with this warning to us that we are in the last hour of this age. And so a question that arises, you know, for me and for you is, are you living for this age or for the age to come? And have you made the preparations for this age to come? For those in belief, who believe in him, he will come and take us home to be with him in eternity. That is eternal life. He promises that in John chapter 14. This verse, or John chapter 14, this verse is read often at funerals where Jesus goes and he says he goes to the Father to prepare a place for us and, and that where he will be that we may be also. And he says if this were not so that I would not have told you that he goes to prepare a place for us. And if you are a child of God, then eternity with Jesus in heaven is for you. But if you are not his child, I want to tell you that you can be. Confess your sins before our holy God. Repent and turn to him in faith. Believe in all that he has done to accomplish eternal life for you. You know, the thief on the cross didn't have much time to make his preparations, but a little time was all he needed. You know, sometimes when I'm wanting to share the gospel with someone, I think I have to go into deeper theological discussions. You know, you have to understand imputed righteousness. You know, you have to understand all the doctrines of grace and really try to make it as difficult as I can, but um, yet, really, we just need to plead for mercy on the one who is able to give it. In his rebuke of the other thief who mocked Jesus, this thief on the cross exemplified a repentant heart. He recognized Jesus was God. He knew he was not long for this age, and here is what he says, along with Jesus' reply. But the other rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Unlike the one who went to his death mocking our Lord, the other sinner, who really represents all of us in a sense, pleaded with Jesus for his mercy, knowing that he was able to save him and take him to paradise to be with him. So before committing to resolutions that you may not keep or much less even start, I pray that you will make this most important decision for your future whether we are still in the minutes or the seconds of this last hour that John speaks of, what is important for you is now. If you have not made preparations for your future, I hope that you will before it is too late. Let's pray. Father, we once again come to you thanking you for your word to us, thanking you for your truth that is revealed through your scriptures, and I pray that it has been divided rightly and that I've been faithful to it, God, and there's things that I've twisted or caused people to understand in a way that you didn't intend that I would not um, draw anyone into error, God, that you would just reveal that to us. Help us to test all things. Help us to be like the noble-minded Bereans that continually went to the scriptures to prove the things that they were being told were so. As we watch our televisions, as we read articles, or we read even uh, well-meaning Christian self-help books, that we are continually going to the scriptures to make sure that what we are hearing is the truth about you, God who you were, all that you did for us, and what you came to do, that you are a living, risen, and ruling Savior, 
And God, we just want to submit to that. And just if there's someone here that has not pled for mercy as we see the thief on the cross doing, God, that that they will come to that moment where they are confessing their sins before you, that they would put their faith in you as their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and maybe it would be the beginning of a new year for them and a new life with you. We pray this and ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.